We are walking with Jesus through this chronology, just following his steps, following the lessons as he reveals them, as he exposes them. We find ourselves in, in the book of Luke hitting a series of parables that fall back to back. This is the second of them. There's probably three more of them, and we'll cover one per week. This one begins in verse 35, Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves lock unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour that you think not. I want to stop there, and then I'm going to read a couple of more verses in just a minute. I'm not going to, again, go extensively into this. I don't think Jesus gave this parable for multiple reasons. I think he gave it to them for one specific reason. Because when he introduces this parable in in verse 35, and he says for them to gird themselves and for their lights to be on, he's telling not only something about them, he's telling us something about ourselves. And I want to tell you, we have become very, very distracted in the the Christian world. Again, away from the simple expectations of what God has for us. We have made it difficult. We have made it complex. We have created rigor, steps, and things that we need to come to and come through. And the reality is that God has made this very simple. He has told us, I'm coming back. He has told us that repeatedly. He speaks of his first advent. He came as a child. He came as a baby born in a manger. That was when he first came, according to the first story of the first advent. But he's also told us clearly in Matthew and other in other chapters, I am coming again. Now, for any of us who you know who who understand this, then we should at least ask this question How do I get ready for the day when he's coming back? How do I get ready for the day that I'm going to stand at the Bema seat? How do I get ready for the day that it's going to be my turn to face Jesus with one question on his heart? Randy, at eight years old, you were saved. At eight years old, you asked me to save you. You received that salvation. That's what qualifies you to stand here. If you haven't been saved, you're not going to stand there because that, he's going to take us He's going to rapture us, and in those who are not believers, those who are not people of faith, who haven't put their trust in him, are going to be left. I can show you that clearly within the scripture. So what's going to happen according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when it's our turn to stand at the Bema, to stand before Jesus, not to give an account of my salvation, but to give an account of what did I do with the life after the moment I was saved. And most of us 
for so many years have been taught to believe that what's going to please Jesus on that day is for us or for him to run down this list of accomplishments that we have been able to put on this list, the things that we've accomplished, all the good things that we have done, and the Bible says he's going to look at those things and he's going to see them as filthy rags. He's not going to have a list there of how many good works that we did. He's not going to have a list there of how many times we came to church or how much money we've given. And if anybody believes that that's what's going to please God, they need to go back and read the book again. He's not going to be pleased that I'm Baptist, as shocking as that may seem. He's not going to be pleased that I'm a member of this denomination. As a matter of fact, I do believe, and we're going to address this at some point within this church when he gives me permission, I think he's going to be rather upset with us all that we belong to denominations. Because in John chapter 17, the one thing that he prayed over the church and not over a denomination was that we would be one as he and his father are one. He spoke unity into his body so that we would look like him and we have by our own choice segregated ourselves along denominational lines and stand in great defense of those. And I think being Baptist, and if I ever even mentioned it, would not go well. I don't think I'm going to surprise him at that moment. But I'm a Christian. I have a relationship with him. And that doesn't follow a denominational line. I love the truth. And I don't care whether it, you know, it comes to me from someone who is a member of the Church of Christ or someone who's a member of the Catholic Church or as strange as it may sound, someone who comes from the Mormon Church. I don't care. Maybe I should. But I want to tell you, when God, when God opens a door and speaks truth, if he could deliver food from a raven and could speak from the mouth of a donkey, I guarantee he can use me to speak to someone else if he's going to choose to do that. I ought to have the sense to listen. What's he going to be pleased with when I stand there and it's my turn? Well, he gives us a very simple instruction. While you're waiting, I want you to be very mindful of that day. I want you to drive looking out the windshield and not looking out the rearview mirror. I want you to have your eyes focused on what's in front of you. I want you to live in anticipation of my coming. I want it to be important to you that I'm coming again. Because I want you to live every day with the understanding that I'm coming. Because it would be a fool who would say that Jesus is coming, but, but I don't have to get ready until that, those very last moments. And he's going to address that in these following verses. So when, when we start determining today the difference between what's critical that captures our time and our attention and what's important, what's the difference between critical things and important things? Most of us on a day-to-day -day basis work on those things that are critical. The difference is simple. Under the category of critical, who sets the priority? Someone else. Some situation or someone else drives critical things and forces our reaction. And most of us get very accomplished at handling critical things and spend very little time on important things. Important things are the things that I have an opportunity to determine and set the priority. 
Most of the time, our lives are so directed because we have to be somewhere else based on someone else's schedule, meeting someone else's need, focused on someone else's issue, some crisis at work, some crisis at home, some issue that is, that is coming, and it's critical, and, we, and it captures our time, it captures our heart, and we have very little time in doing those things that are important. Building the kingdom of God is important. Now, we want to move it over into the category of critical. But if I have the presence of God in me, living in me, setting the priorities, it's always going to be important. And what will Satan, what does Satan love to do? To raise everything up to the level of being critical so that our minds and our attention are so captured, tending to things that we have no time to build a kingdom. The important things. We deal with critical things all the time. We're urgent all the time. Pressed so much of the time. And God's saying, but you don't get to do those things then that are important. He's telling us, this is important. I want you, verse 35, how do you be ready? Let your loins be girded about. Now, what in the world could, could Jesus have been telling them? Be ready. All, you know, in, in the Old Testament, getting them ready to leave. Egypt, and know when that moment was come, he told them, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to be ready. Because when I want you to move, I want you to move. What was necessary in, in this? When you, when you read about this, when you read about the loins to be girded, it is a metaphor for being bound about with truth. To have every one of your garments held together, bound together with truth. So for me to be obedient, I must first hear the truth from, from the word and let it come to my life and radiate as life. For it to come from the voices of others so that when you speak, it resonates as truth to me, but also from the, from the very mouth of God so that I can hear it and understand in my spirit that God just spoke. I was watching the movie trailer again just a few minutes ago because someone had asked me that heard that the movie Noah was written by someone who was an atheist. I'd have no idea if that's true or not. It doesn't matter to me whether it is or isn't. Because when you read the, when you watch the movie trailer, I haven't seen the movie yet, hadn't come out yet, but the movie trailer, you know, begins by Noah's wife saying, what did he say? Well, who's the he? God. God spoke. How did Noah know what to do? And she asked him, what did he say? And Noah's response, he's going to destroy the world. You can't remove the testimony of the reality of God that drives us to obedience. The necessary thing that drives obedience is that we're girded about with truth because we hear. It brings the reality of the truth. He says, I'm going away. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm sending you. He didn't say the Holy Spirit. What did he call him? The spirit of truth. I'm sending you the spirit of truth. Why? Because our, our, our ability to be ready for that day means I must hear, I must know the truth so that I can be ready. How strange it would be for God to say, I want you to be ready, but I'm not going to talk to you. I want you to be ready for that day. I want you to be ready to stand before me. Good luck. I'm going to be quiet from now to that point. I'm not going to say anything. How do I know how to be obedient if he's not going to speak the truth? So the number one thing that he's, he just he, he launches this with, 
is I want you to have your loins girt about. It means I want you to be ready. I want you to, to, to know the truth. I want you to live the truth. I want you to host the presence of truth. I want you to expose people to truth. What will the truth do for us and for them? Set us free. A God who loves freedom says, you host me, carry the spirit of truth, be ready. And then, he, and then he makes this next one. Two things tied together with this word, and not only that, I want your lights to be burning. Now what does he, I mean, we can go to so many scriptures, we can go to childhood songs about the reality of this. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus says, take that lamp, put it in the middle of the room. Now, these weren't candles. We, we kind of need to connect. These weren't candles. These were flames that were coming from a source. What was the source? Oil. What's he telling us here? He tells us here. He tells us in many other places. What does that oil reflect? What's it telling us about? The Holy Spirit. He's saying, I want you to live every day unto the reality that because the Holy Spirit lives in you and because I am light and I am life, I want you to be able to live that life that they didn't put it low on the floor. The lampstands of that day where these things were placed were placed at about, at about chest high because that's where it would do the best job of illuminating the entirety of the room. I want you to take that light, that flame, and I want you to put it in a place that is going to illuminate. I want it to be able to, to do everything that it's designed to do. But it will go out if it's not attached to the, to the Holy Spirit. Again, Matthew chapter 25 in the, in the parables there, in the difference between the five wise virgins and the five foolish ones, they were all virgins. It means they were all Connected to God, they were all believers. The one specific difference is even all of them had oil in their lamps. But those who, those who were wise also carried extra oil in a container. They had an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling us very specifically, I think, and very clearly, if you want to be ready for that day when you're going to stand before me, when I look at you, I want to see myself. I want to see the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to see the work of God. I want to see what he did through you. I want to see your obedience to what he told you. I want to see how you have hosted his presence and released him through your story into someone else's. That's what I'm going to be looking for. And if I'm going to look for it, here's the two things that you need to know. And he said, I want you to be so ready because you don't know when he's going to return. Now, there's a lot of connection here. In, in commentaries about the fact that the word wedding is used. I don't think this necessarily is teaching us very much, if anything, about the wedding feast and what's going to happen when we're, when we're there. I won't dismiss that teaching, but it's, it's almost more that Jesus is simply using an illustration of a master who's coming home from a wedding. Because the reason that this would get tricky if it's not just a simple illustration is I plan to be at the wedding. I don't plan to be the one who's watching for him after the wedding. I think he's, Jesus is using a simple illustration of a master who is at an event 
And the people who are watching for him are watching for him in the hour they expect him. They're watching for him in the second watch of the night. They're watching for him in the third watch of the night because the most important thing to them is the reality that the master is coming. That's the message here. The master is coming. Jesus is coming. I'm amazed that the Christian church has lost this message and strangely believe that what, when, when it is the time that what's going to please him is that I have performed so well as a Christian that he's going to be proud of me. How shocked the Christian world is going to be when they're dismissed as filthy rags because it was our best effort instead of the presence of God working through us. That's what he's looking for. Learning to host the Spirit of God. Let's, let's begin in verse 41. I just want to read three more verses and, be, and conclude there. Peter had a very natural question as Jesus spoke this parable because it bewildered Peter. He's saying, and Peter says unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us as the disciples or even unto all, believers and non-believers? Jesus answered it very well. And the Lord said, who then is this faithful and wise steward? Peter, you'll know, you'll know who I'm speaking to by the answer I'm fixing to give you. Who is that wise steward that stays on guard, that stays watching, that has his, his loins girt about with truth, that has this light shining in, in preparation for the master's return? Who is that good steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. So he's saying, Peter, I'm speaking to those of you. I'm speaking to those of you, that, that good steward, who, will, who God will find faithful, who God will find with that yes, who God will find watching and being prepared for the return of the master. I think it would be amazing on the day that Jesus returns that none of us would stand at that moment with a single regret about what I had on my mind at the moment or what I'm doing at the moment, that I would stand there with, with an absolute readiness because I anticipated him coming and it did not catch me by surprise by a single moment. But how can that happen? How can, here, according to this story, how could the, the servant not be surprised when the master got home? He was standing watching to see the first moment when the master would appear, small in the distance, that's the way he would not be surprised. I read a story a, a long time ago, and I, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to blunder through this because I can't remember the specifics of it well enough. But it was a story of a home of mentally challenged children. And they said one of the most difficult things that they dealt with was fingerprints on the windows because they lived in constant watch. They lived in constant readiness for who was about to come. I hope that we, in, in, in this metaphor, I hope that there are fingerprints on the windows of our life because we stand there with anticipation, waiting, looking forward to the one who's about to come. Verse 43 again, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he comes shall find so doing. Jesus is very clear. There's not any confusion here. I want you to be ready. I want you to watch. And while you're watching, I want you to be a servant 
who is ready with the truth, eagerly obedient, because it says, what's going to happen? He says, when the master gets there, he's going to gird himself, and he's going to serve you. What an unexpected turn for the servant who was found faithful, who was up in the middle of the night, still standing there watching for the master to come. In the second watch, or in the third watch, when everybody else had gone to sleep, here is this servant, or these servants, who have watched diligently and faithfully to see the moment when the master appeared in the distance. And now the master is home. And the master says, listen, guys, you all sit down. You've waited a long time. You have been faithful to do what I asked you to do while I was gone. I'm back now. Let me serve you. How strange the moment. We get, the pit, we get a glimpse of this when Jesus girds himself and tends to the disciples. That's a picture of what's going to happen. He's going to serve us. He's going to minister to us because of the intimacy of the relationship. For those he finds faithful, ready, watching, prepared. And we can resist this, and we can say, no, I'm right. He's going to be pleased because I'm Baptist. He's going to be pleased because I, I, I came to Sunday school. He's going to be pleased because I came to church. I sang in the choir. I read my Bible every day. I was involved. And we can convince ourselves maybe that that's what's going to please him. Just not what it says. Jesus refuses to say that. Matter of fact, when they come to him and say, what must we do to do the works of God? He doesn't give them a list. He says, believe. Simply believe. And you can do in faith the things that I do. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this parable Lord, we can often read a lot into these, and we can make them very complex. I just thank you, Lord, as I studied this one, you kind of turned off everybody else's thoughts. You turned off all the commentaries, everything that everybody else thinks, and just said, Randy, stand up and teach it, and I'll, I'll share the truth. And I thank you for that, Lord, that, that this one tonight was designed to be a simple picture expressed from the profound truth of your heart so that we could receive it with clarity, with understanding, that we would know what it means to be ready, to be watching in the second, even into the second and third watch with our hands and our noses pressed with anticipation, looking and watching for you, knowing that it's not going to be long and you're coming. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of all the scriptures that bears witness to that. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that you find ready. We speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.